The first way up there, allowing Jesus Christ to inform all of your life, this produces authentic followers of Jesus. So this is the good way. The second way to take all of your life and cram it into a religious category, well, this produces uh, religious fanatics and world-denying separatists. And this is a dangerous, a dangerous path that we don't want to walk down, where we start feeling like everything that's outside of the religious category uh, is the enemy. And this, it's amazing, the story of Jesus turning water into wine at Cana, it's what I would consider probably the complete opposite of religious fanaticism and world-denying separatism. Because it's Jesus doing something that involves real people in real life, and it's something, one of the, the things that I love about it is it's something that really religious people would really hate. It, like, people hate this story. People, like, youth pastors hate this story, and that's one of the things I love about it. I think it's so cool because it's so, it's so defiant to, uh, to the Christian, I would say the Christian norm. Uh, let's see. <laughs> okay, so here's the story. We're going to tell the story a little bit. I'm sorry, we're having a bad day over there. Sweet girl. Sweet girl. Oh, precious. <laughs> okay. Here's the story. Sorry, guys. Here's the story um, of Jesus turning water into wine. This happens at Cana in Galilee. I actually have a picture of it for you. I got a new Bible software, and it makes maps. So that's why I've had maps in all my sermons. I know it's kind of cool. <laughs> We've had maps like three weeks in a row now. I just love maps. Okay, so we're talking about Cana right there in Galilee. As you can see, it's a few miles north of Nazareth. Nazareth is a big uh, Bible town. This is where Jesus is living and working. Uh, He's just begun his ministry. So Jesus is living in Nazareth. And both of these are just very small villages, maybe a few hundred people, these different ones. And and there's going to be a big wedding. There's going to be a big wedding in Cana. And apparently these people know each other because they're invited. It's just small town living at its finest. And so it's probably a couple hours to walk, maybe less, maybe an hour to walk, something like that. And so Jesus, he's invited to this big wedding that's happening uh, in Cana. And weddings back in the day, I'm sure probably you know, you Bible scholars, weddings were a big day or a big, big deal. It wasn't just like a, a little piece of cake and some awkward punch or something like that. It was this huge feast and huge party that uh, went all day and all night And sometimes it went multiple days and multiple nights. So Jesus was invited to this party. We assume that he just knew the people that were probably getting married. He grew up, you know, right in this same vicinity. His mom was there. Some of the disciples were there uh, as well. So they they were just there. They were just attenders to the wedding and to the celebration. He's there. There's this little ceremony that happens, but then they break into this big, eternal, never-ending party with dancing and drinking and all these different things. And so I, I like to think, if you just picture it with me, picture people being at this big wedding and people are dancing. You know, did Jesus dance? I like to think so. I like to think, I like to think that he did. It was probably not hip-hop. It's probably something more Jewish. But I, like, I don't know what it looked like. But I do like to think of Jesus uh, as dancing. And immediately I'd say the over-pious, the over-serious um, uh, of us don't even like that idea. They don't like the idea of Jesus dancing because it's not serious enough. Uh, the super serious Christians, they would, they would look at this story and they would just secretly wish. It's like, man, Jesus, what are you doing? Why don't you go in there and tell people to go, stu- go home and study your Bibles? Or something like that is what a lot of people uh, secretly wish, but we see uh, no sense, we have no sense of that. Uh, in the story here. So at some point, these people run out of wine. 
So obviously they've been drinking wine, and that could be a little, I'd say this, it could be a little embarrassing probably. Uh, maybe they didn't buy enough wine or something like that. But if you, I mean, let's be real, it's not the end of the world. It's not, let's be honest, if I was there, I wouldn't be like, oh my God, we're out of wine, we need a miracle. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's just like, eh, ran out of wine, darn, drink wine, you gotta drink water now. Or whatever, but it's, it's, it's weird. Like when the centurion's servant is near death, they need a miracle. And uh, when Jairus' daughter is dead, of course they need a miracle. When you're uh, in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, you need a miracle. But when you run out of wine, you don't need a miracle. Unless maybe you're like a wino or something like that, you know what I mean? But, but it's, just, it's just weird because it seems like a very trivial uh, thing. And so I just think it's amazing because this is Jesus' first miracle. This is his first miracle of all the things that he could do. So uh, Jesus' mom, she has a hunch. I just think women's intuition is real. You know what I mean? It's, it, like the Bible specifically says that this was his first miracle. So it's not like he's done this before. You know, it's not like, Jesus, we're out of milk. No problem. Let there be milk or something like that. It's, it's nothing, nothing like that. It, but it was just, she had a little bit of a hunch. And so moms just know things. It's a mystery, but we all know it's true. So she says to Jesus, and she's kind of hinting towards Jesus, and she says, you know, they ran out of wine. And Jesus is, if we're being honest, a little sassy. He's a little sassy with her. Uh, It's like, and he says this, woman, what's that got to do with me? My time has not yet come. It's like, geez, Jesus, chill, man. Jeez, so uncool. Mary, Mary doesn't let it bother her. She just moves on. Uh, she, just says, she just says to the waiters, well, whatever he says to do, just do that. So then Jesus gets after it, and he turns water into wine. Of course, you guys know the story. And so there's these stone pots. Uh, wait on the slide, I'll tell you when. There's these stone pots, and they're not household pots. They're like, these are specifically religious items. The Bible goes out of the way to say that these are religious items. It says that they're for the Jewish rites of purification, and they're these big pots, like 20 to 30 gallons uh, is what it says, each, and it says that there's six of them. So they were filling, they were fulfilling what uh, is known as a mikvah, and we would call this traditionally, or modern day, we would call this a baptistry. So these were the things that they would put holy water in to go uh, and pour it in there. If you were to baptize someone, that's where you'd go. If you were to ever go to Israel on some sort of tour, you'd probably see there's tons of mikvahs there. I have a picture of one. So these were the baptistries that they would use these big 20 to 30 uh, pound pots of water and they would put holy water in them and they would pour them in these things. And so those were the things uh, that you do. You'd fill them up with holy water. So Jesus says, hmm, well, let's fill up some of those. Let's go fill those things up all the way with water. And so then he says to the waiter, hey, go, give, uh, go and give some to the wedding coordinator. That's basically who it is. And the waiter says, like, are you sure? And, and he says, yeah, I'm sure. Go, go send it. And so at some point, of course, the water turns into wine. And the wedding coordinator says, wow, I don't know, I don't know what happened here. Usually people uh, will bring out the, the best wine first. And then once people can't tell the difference, then they'll bring out the cheap wine, but not you. You guys have saved the best for last. And it's, it's interesting because he doesn't know that uh, a miracle has happened or anything. He just assumes that someone found some wine. 180 gallons of wine, if you do the math, is what we're talking about. 180 gallons of wine is what we're talking about that they magically uh, found. So I, I find this story, um, and that's basically the end of the story. I find where this story where Jesus turns water into the wine uh, kind of funny, if I'm being honest. I definitely think there's some humor involved. 
But more than anything, I think of this story as, and forgive this silly word, but I find it absolutely delightful. I just think it's, I just think it's precious and heartwarming and kind of sweet and kind of awkward, but I think it's beautiful and it's also mysterious. I just think it's a great story. And I, I you know, and there's a lot of people that have tried to really serious the story up. And they've, they've said, well, there's probably some symbolism here. You know, they're talking about how the exile is over and God at one point had divorced Israel and now there's this remarriage and they're there to celebrate the fact that God has no longer divorced the Israelites. And I'll say, it's probably true. It's, pro- it's probably there at some place, this analogy. But I think it's even better to just take it, take the story for what it is. And it's Jesus went to this wedding and they ran out of wine. And so then Jesus goes and he uses religious items to turn water into wine. I just think it's great. I just love that story. And just, maybe if you could, just sit in that for a minute and let that help you understand Jesus. Because it, I, there's a lot of people who were raised up in the church and that's not the picture they have of Jesus Christ. That's not what they think about him. I just think it's so beautiful uh, that this was his first miracle. And we find Jesus at a party. This word party from the Latin is patir. And uh, what that means is this, to share. It's the word that we use to get like, things like partition and stuff like that. But uh, it's to share. And that's what a party is, basically, if you think about it. We share our stuff. We get together, you know, for some reason, and we bring food. Maybe somebody brings some food. Somebody else brings some drink or whatever. And we go and we share our food, and we share our drinks, and we share our fellowship, and we share our happiness. We uh, exit out for a brief time of our private lives, and then we enter in uh, into this time where we share together. And it could, sometimes it could be for a wedding. Sometimes, this is in the case of yesterday, for me, it could be for a funeral. Sometimes it could be for a football game, whatever. But there's some sort of party where we find an excuse to get together, and then there's sharing that happens. And so there's this thing about um, sharing in the Bible, and I think it's really beautiful in this story. And the Gospel of John is where we're reading, and it's a great book. Uh, and it, you guys know, all you Bible scholars out there, you know that the book of John, the Gospel of John, in the four Gospels is really the odd duck. It's weird. It's an it's a unusual um, book, I would say, an unusual gospel, because John, when he writes it, he's not particularly concerned with chronology. He's not, he's not trying to write like a really technical book. That's not what he's trying to do. He's written a really artistic gospel. He writes a really theological gospel, but it's not a super uh, technical gospel. And he's not super concerned with like getting details right because that's not the type of book that he's writing. Quick example, uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's really clear that Jesus, when he comes and cleanses the temple, remember that with the whip and all that, it makes it real clear that that happens the day after Palm Sunday. And if you guys know your church calendar, you know that that's at the very end of Jesus' ministry. But it's weird, but, um, and in fact, I'll say it like this, the cleansing of the temple is really the thing that puts Jesus on the collision course with the Pharisees and ultimately leads to his uh, arrest and uh, conviction and crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection. These all kind of start from uh, this Palm Sunday and him cleansing the temple type thing. But John, in the book of John, it's really different. And remember, it's a different kind of book. The cleansing of the temple, he takes it and he puts it at the very beginning. In fact, it's in John chapter 2. And it's not that John thinks that it happened first. It's, it's not that. It's that he's giving, John, the book is giving little snapshots of Jesus. These little pictures, these little vignettes of Jesus. In fact, the construction of John, theologians would tell you, that it's comprised of basically seven signs or seven different miracles that happen in the life of Jesus. And they're all designed to teach you something cool about Jesus, and this is the first one. So it's, John is cool because he connects things together in, in like a really artistic way. 
And so all the reason I tell you that is because when you see in John chapter 2, he actually connects the cleansing of the temple and the wedding of Galilee. He puts them right next to each other, even though they really didn't happen that close to each other. One happened at the very beginning of his ministry, and clearly another one happened at the very end of his ministry. But he's there to juxtapose. It's just a big, weird word. He's just wanting to make a really big contrast between these two events, hoping that you would pick up on some of the symbolism. Okay, so in John chapter 2, all of that, John chapter 2, Jesus makes two things. He makes wine, and then Jesus makes a whip. This is the two things that you see him making in John. And so he makes wine to encourage, uh, encourage human celebration. And then he makes a whip to condemn religious exploitation. Which I think is really interesting that he makes wine to encourage human celebration. And then he makes a whip to condemn religious exploitation. There were people that were using religion to control, to uh, exploit, to manipulate, um, to rule over people. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that will be something that will be in our past. It's still a little bit in our future right now. But we're hoping to get past that. But I think it's really interesting that people oftentimes, when it comes to these two things that Jesus had made, people oftentimes get it backwards. And what I mean by that is people would maybe wish that Jesus made a whip when he went to the party. You know what I mean? Like people wish there was like, there was dancing and there was drinking and he, they, people wish Jesus would have gone in there and said, man, that's enough. Go home and read your Bibles and like whipping people and really mad. But that's not, that's not the story uh, that you see at all here. He doesn't do that. Uh, Jesus, in fact, Jesus blesses human celebration and makes a whip to deal with religious exploitation. And I find that really interesting. I think it's really uh, revealing about the character of Jesus and what his motivations really are. Because a classic religious figure might, you might think that they would do the exact opposite. They would cover their own brothers and they would expose the sinners. Jesus oftentimes does the exact opposite. He covers the sinners and he exposes his brothers, which is kind of an interesting thing. You guys ever read, uh, anyone ever read The Grapes of Wrath? Raise your hand if you've read The Grapes of Wrath. Come on, you guys, I thought it was like a required school thing. It is, okay, y'all. <laughs> GED, people are yelling GED. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll tell you the Grapes of Wrath. So the Grapes of Wrath, it was written by a guy uh, by the name of John Steinbeck. It's one of the great American novels. The story is, it goes and it follows uh, Depression-era migrant workers and some of the hardships that they face. It's centered around this family called the Jodes. Does anybody remember the Jodes? Obviously you don't. You don't remember the Jodes. There's this guy, Tom Jode. He's the protagonist. And uh, these migrant workers, these migrant workers in the story, uh, they live in migrant camps. So they don't have much. Uh, They don't have much to their name. They don't have a lot of material possessions. They don't have a lot of freedom. But one thing that they do have and one thing that they do love is they had the Saturday night square dance. And they really loved it. Uh, but is really beautiful, but uh, there's this group in the story of world-denying Pentecostals. Uh, John Steinbeck calls them the Jesus lovers in the character. And the Jesus lovers, they won't go to the dance. They, uh, they hate the dance and they condemn the dance. And uh, Brian's out, I did you notice I didn't have a reading at the beginning? We usually have a reading. I decided to move it to the uh, center because uh, I wanted to do it, and it wouldn't make any sense beforehand. So this is what Brian Zond says uh, in his essay entitled The World and the Dance. I'm going to read it to you. Keep in mind the grapes of wrath. Okay. And in the distance, the Jesus lovers sat with hard condemning faces and watched the sin. 
It's a line from the book. This is how John Steinbeck depicts the world-denying Pentecostals in the Grapes of Wrath as self-righteous, self-appointed morality police who take perverse pleasure in condemning the Saturday night square dance in the California migrant camp. Steinbeck's terse portrayal of the Jesus lovers is unflattering, but not unfair. It's not an unfair invention of fiction. Unfortunately, such people do exist, and in their existence, they horribly distort the good news of Jesus Christ. So question, do Steinbeck's Jesus lovers who sit in judgment of the Saturday night square dance with their hard condemning faces really love the Jesus whose first miracle was to turn water into wine and keep the dance going? Do they love that Jesus? Or have they invented another one? Jesus seems to be pro-dance. That is, Jesus endorses and participates in the celebration of humanness. But does joining the dance of humanness have dangers? If you'd like some uh, balance here, some balance. Does joining the dance of humanness have dangers? In some ways, yes. At times, the line between the Babylon condemned by God and the Cana blessed by God is hard to distinguish. But to live as a world-denying, angry, judgmental separatist is such a betrayal of the logos, pathos, and ethos of Jesus as not to be an option. We must not do that. We must join the dance as those who believe that God loves the world and is saving the world in Christ. We must joyfully belong to human society. We must join the dance. The church must creatively participate in, here's his list, the arts, music, poetry, literature, film, theater, athletics, education, entertainment, law, governance, business, finance, commerce, conservation, medicine, journalism, labor, science, research, philosophy, theology, and all that is necessary to produce a healthy, flourishing human society. I love, I love this. I love this sentence. We can't sit with the pinched-faced world deniers, secretly hoping the worst will befall those who dare to truly enjoy life. Oh, it's so good. I got to read it again. We can't, we can't sit with the pinched-faced world deniers, secretly hoping the worst will befall on those who dare to truly enjoy life. We cannot present the face of Christ to a broken world with an angry scowl. An honest reading of the Gospels makes it clear that the only sin that regularly arouses Jesus' anger was the sin of self-righteous religiosity. Boom. So good, right? Okay, so, so hopefully you sensed a little bit of balance there. Here's the tension for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. There is a world that is to be denied and rejected. The Bible talks a lot about it. It's the world of idolatry and injustice. And then there also is a world to be affirmed and to be celebrated. And this is the world of flourishing human society. So loved by God. And I'd say this, the health and the integrity of the church largely hangs on our ability to affirm the right version and reject the wrong version. And the way that we, the way that we as people who follow Jesus Christ relate to the world is super important. It makes all the difference in the world. Uh, just a super fast word study. I know, I said the worst. The word uh, world, it, it's important. The word, word world comes from the Greek cosmos, cosmos. And it's used by John a lot in his book. And it's used both positively and negatively. 
There's a world to love and there's a world to not love. In fact, John says it like this. I think it's really interesting. John 3, 16, he says this, for God so loved the cosmos. For God so loved the cosmos. But then he also says this, do not love the cosmos. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away. So you might be thinking, well, make up your mind, John. Well, what are you saying? Love the world and then don't love the world. You're just going to have to accept that John uses the same word and means different things different times that he uses the word. And, and so you just need to keep, it's helpful if you read the Bible and your relationship with this tricky word called the world that it seems like sometimes God super loves the world and then other times God really doesn't love the world. You just have to make peace that there is a world to be embraced and loved and uh, participated in. And then there's also this world to be rejected and denied. And uh, you have to know the difference and it's not always easy. If you've, if you've lived in the world, if you haven't lived a super sheltered life, but you've had the courage to actually go out into the world, you probably know that finding the right balance of loving the world and never being defined by the world is something that's really hard. In fact, you might even say that like you need uh, God's help and it's super important. But what you have to know is that being a world denier is not an option. We, can, we can't be people who, who decide that everything here, everything on this planet is just not good. And, and if it sounds like so foreign, listen, there are Christians out there who think this. They think the world is just totally horrible. And as much as I can just live in my own little world, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to create my own little thing, my own little community. And, and then we're just going to be happy over here. And we're not going to have to interfere with the yucky, nasty world. That's not an option. We need to remember that the idea of human society is God's idea. The idea of human society, us living together, us going and doing things together, us going and having interaction with people who don't believe like us. That's, that's God's idea. It's a good thing. It's something that's supposed to be celebrated. Uh, that humans, God wants humans to live together, to celebrate, to love each other, to have culture, to have happiness, to come together and dance and have fun. That's all good and God blesses all of that. But there is a world, there is a world uh, that is uh, built on lust and empire, and exploitation. There's a world that's built on power, and oppression, and using people. And that's the world, Bible, the Bible calls it Babylon, and it's to be rejected at all costs. It is the thing, it is the thing that largely the book of Revelation, I'm sure you guys were here for, is meant to uh, critique, is this, this worldly empire based on power, and using other people. But we can never be, we can never be people who just say, man, the world is just the worst. I just hate it. I'm just going to go over here and create my own little thing. To do that is such a complete betrayal of Jesus who comes and turns water into wine to keep the dance going. You know, for for me, I guess I I find it, uh, I don't know, interesting, not interesting. It's a lame word. Uh, Important. I guess maybe I find it real significant, uh, significant that this was Jesus's first miracle, I think it's really not raising the dead, not healing the leper. Uh, It's not something that's necessary. I find that important. Uh, That it's not not necessary to make water, uh, turn water into wine at a party where people have already had plenty of wine. There's no one who would think that that's a necessary thing. It's not necessary. It's excessive. But that's what Jesus does. And it sets the tone for his entire ministry. Because Jesus is going to come and he's going to invite people into his celebration. 
That's part of what is defined uh, in the incredible life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, and it's what puts him on a collision course with the pinched-faced, world-denying, legalistic, separatist Pharisees. I don't know if you know this. I found this interesting, but the word Pharisee, it actually means separatist. If you were to live uh, in their day and someone were to say uh, separatist or, or Pharisee, it would sound to your ears like separatist. And uh, was, they loved that. They bragged about being people who were separate from the world. They loved that idea. They lo- in fact, there's this uh, interesting verse. There's this weird thing in Luke chapter 7, verse 31. And I've gone to Bible college. So, uh, but, so I'll be honest. I've gone 32 plus years and never had any idea what this means. I, I'm sure we probably learned it in Bible college and I just wasn't paying attention or something, but there's this weird interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And it's like about being in the market and playing a flute and people not crying. And it just, it's like total nonsense. It's always been nonsense uh, to me. I never knew what it's talking about, but now I do know what it's talking about. And I absolutely love it. It's one of the coolest things that I think Jesus says, especially to the Pharisees. So uh, I'm going to read it to you. Luke chapter seven, verse 31, Jesus says this, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? He's talking about the Pharisees. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. And the son of man comes eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Gotta admit, that's a weird, that's a weird thing to say. Yeah, you're probably like, eh. okay. Think about, uh, here's the explanation. Think about kids playing. Uh, if a kid is gonna play, he has to learn to play along with the rest of the kids. He has to be able to use his imagination to a certain extent. But there are, let's say, bad kids uh, who won't play along who don't, they don't play right. And Jesus is saying, that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like kids that don't play right. Jesus is saying, they're kids that won't play along. We play wedding songs and they won't dance. And then we play funeral songs and they won't cry. He's saying, they're just like, they're just flat. And Jesus is saying, man, you guys, you don't play right. You guys are boring. You guys, you guys just sit there with your arms folded and you never do anything cool. That's what, it's what Jesus is saying. And uh, that's, what, that's what I would say world-denying religion does. It just makes you boring. It just makes you super flat-faced, you know, where it's like you're not doing anything. You're not even showing emotion. And Jesus is saying, man, you can't, waste, you can't play with people like that. Don't waste your time on people like that. You can't play with them. They're not playing uh, right. And here was their criticism, the uh, Pharisees' main criticism. Uh, with John the Baptist, let's say that he was the sad side. He was the funeral uh, song here. So uh, let's call him the weeper. John is uh, the weeper and he lives in the desert and he eats bugs and he doesn't drink any wine or anything like that. And so the Pharisees come and they say, man, well, he must have a demon. And so then Jesus comes and let's say he's the other side of it, the other end of the spectrum. He's the dancer where he does eat and he does drink. And uh, he, in fact, to make it worse, he's, he's doing it with sinners. And then they say, the, the, the Pharisees come and say, well, he's a glutton and a drunkard. So it's interesting. And so, of course, the Pharisees were wrong on both accounts. John the Baptist wasn't demon-possessed. Jesus wasn't a drunkard. But what both of these people did have was depth of feeling. They, they, they could engage with humanity. They had, some, they, had like, they had feeling on the inside of them. Uh, but the Pharisees, they, they didn't. 
They, they couldn't. They didn't know how to engage with uh, the culture of the day. Uh, they were just all alone trying to be something, trying their hardest to be something other than human. In fact, in fact when they saw other humans, they thought, man, I don't want to be like that. So I want to be something else. So I want to be something else special. If you'll recall, they even prayed that. We can uh, recall the Pharisee praying, uh, God, thank you that I'm not like other people, is what Jesus, or is what uh, Pharisee prays one time. And he just couldn't accept that God made him a human. And you'll, you'll recall uh, that because he couldn't be a part of humanity in the story, he couldn't be saved. It said this, that he went home unjustified, was this man who, whose prayer was, thank God that I'm not like these other people. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we're going to have to make an effort to take part in this world. Uh, can I get the band to come up? So I was thinking, um, you know, the, uh, the appeal of separatism, being completely separate from the world and ignoring the world and ignoring the culture, I can almost see the appeal because it's simple. It's just really easy, it's just really easy to reject everything you know, it's like, well, you don't do that, and you don't do that, and you don't do that. Oh, and you don't do that. And you don't do that either. And, you know, when in doubt, you don't. It's like, it's pretty easy uh, to think that. It's pretty, it's pretty simple. But the problem is, is this. It's just not Jesus. It's not how he chose to live his life. He didn't live his life constantly looking at the world and the people of the world as his enemy. I'm going to say a quote. I have it on the screen, and then I'll explain it. Uh, but you can write it down. Life is a mystery, love is a dancer. Life is a mystery, love is a dancer. Love dances. You know, love is not legalistic and uh, cold and hard. I'm not, I'm not a good dancer. Anyone who's danced with me could tell you that. Oh, okay. Jay either. Good. Uh, so I'm not a good dancer, but I can tell you that being a good dancer requires something, and it's called Grace. Um, grace is a, it's a word. It means lots of different things. Certainly in church, it means a lot of different stuff. But there's also a more traditional use of the word grace um, where it means, uh, you know, you could say like, well, he's got a lot of grace. Or if you're talking about a dancer, wow, she, she has a lot of grace or she's so graceful. And I, I've, I've learned and I'm starting to think and look at the, the um, interactions that Jesus has with the world. And, I, and I'm starting to think this, Jesus was a graceful dancer. He, 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 wasn't, he wasn't led astray by the world, but he wasn't a separatist either. He was able to be in this beautiful place of grace, flowing in and out and never being defined by the world, but never being afraid of the world. And man, there was nothing graceful about the Pharisees. They were, they were clumsy. They were heavy-handed. But it's amazing when you look at the life of Jesus because he moves in and out of among sinners and he's graceful enough to be welcoming and receiving and loving and kind and compassionate, but he's never defined by them. He's never, let's say, contaminated, if it were, uh, by the world uh, because he learns to move with grace. And that's my, that's my prayer for us, that we would be people who um, have the grace that we can celebrate humanity but not be defined by humanity. That we can live, we can learn the moves that Jesus moved with so we can have this beautiful dance with the world. We can have the be- this beautiful dance with the people of the world where we can celebrate them and we can enjoy them and we can live our lives with these people, but never be defined by that. Never be defined by the culture, 
but be the people who bring Jesus into the culture without fear. There's this guy, uh, there's this guy Steve Parsons. Uh, he's, a, he's a musician and he's got kind of a cool ministry. He wrote this online. I thought it was really beautiful, so I wanted to read it to you. Steve Parsons, he says this, I grew up in a religious movement that taught us to point the finger at the world around us, accusing people of being sinful. I'm not sure why we thought that would be helpful. We were taught to lock the doors, batten down the hatches, and stay as far away from the world as possible. We thought we were becoming holy when in fact we were becoming irrelevant. I love that. We thought we were becoming holy, we were really becoming irrelevant. I don't want to be a part of a religious movement that points a dying finger. Rather, I choose to be a part of a life-giving movement that reaches out with hands of love. Life is a mystery. Love is a dancer. May we all, as followers of Jesus Christ, may we learn the beautiful dance of compassion with a world that desperately needs some help. We are helping nothing by protecting ourselves and just hiding in the bunker, we have to learn to go and dance the beautiful dance that Jesus danced with the world. My closing closing statement is this. If you believe in the Bible, one of the places you will find Jesus is in the celebration of humanity. So we will go to the wedding. We We will belong to the human race. We will join Jesus in the dance because that's where Jesus turns water into wine and people see him and believe. No, we will not be sucked into the false world of immorality and idolatry and injustice. That's what the instructions of Jesus are there to do, to form us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. God, help us learn that dance. Help us learn that dance. We commit to being involved in the conversation. We commit uh, to being not just in the conversation, but to be salt and light, bringing the grace of Jesus into our interactions with humanity. And at the end of the day, you know what? I agree. I will always agree with Louis Armstrong when I say this. What a wonderful world. What a wonderful world. May we learn the dance of Jesus the delicate relationship that we as the church need to continue to have if we're going to make an impact with them. If we're, going to, if we're going to continue to have a voice to the world, we have to learn to dance with them. And we're going to close in communion as we always do. Uh, for those of you who don't know, communion is a sacrament in um, the Christian faith. All that means is it symbolizes something else. So we do it. And for us, what it means is this is, symbolizes eating and drinking with Jesus. And I think that's fitting. One of the things that I think is amazing about today's story is this, that only the servants, think about the story again, only the servants knew the secret. Only the servants were the ones that knew that it was Jesus who turned water into wine. The rest of the people, they didn't know. Only Jesus knew the secret, or only the servants knew the secret that it was Jesus. And our goal tonight as servants is to recognize Jesus and to see Jesus for who he really is a celebrator of humanity, not a world-denying separatist, not a Pharisee, but a celebrator of humanity. He wasn't like the Pharisees that bragged about their, sep- their separateness. No, he deeply loved people. You know, uh, yesterday, I already hinted at it, but yesterday we had uh, our Grampy's funeral. It was my first time doing a eulogy uh, ever, and so it was really um, 
quite the adventure for me. And funerals, especially when it's someone really close, I'm sure a lot of people in here can admit that it's, um, you just end up feeling a whole huge mix of emotions. And it makes you kind of think about life. And, um, you know, you think about how life is, is hard, but it's also really easy sometimes. And it's really sad, but it's also really happy sometimes. And it can seem really long, but it also seems super short sometimes. And it's just, you end up feeling all these different things. But for me, you know, one thing that oftentimes I, I sense or I feel when I'm at a funeral is, is just this, I, I see it and I, I just think, I just see myself and I want you to see yourself tonight and just realize, man, this is your life. Right here, right now. None of you, none of you guys are waiting around, waiting for your life to finally start. This is your life. And for better or for worse, you've made decisions that have led you to this point, sitting in this room right here in 2015. There's no dress rehearsals. This is, this is your life right here, right now. And I want, I want to live it. I really want to embrace it. You know what I mean? I don't want to live my life doing stuff that is fruitless. You know what I mean? I don't want to waste my life on stupid stuff or like hiding when there was no need to hide. I, I want to I live. And I think it's amazing about Jesus is that he helps me live my life to the fullest. A lot of people can grow up in religion and they start to think, well, what you need to choose is fun or Jesus. But the correct view is this. Jesus shows you how to live the best life. He's not the, he's not the guy pointing the finger at the dance. He's the guy who dances. And he wants us to be people who fully embrace and uh, receive and enjoy our lives. So you guys can go ahead and pass out to me. one of the things that I think is beautiful uh, about Jesus. And Jesus comes into our lives, not our religious lives, again, but our real lives, our actual lives, and he makes his home on the inside of us. I think it's beautiful. I think it's a beautiful picture. Uh, 
that he's not a separatist from us. He's, he, it's not like he stays away until we get our act right. No, he comes in and he dances and he laughs and he smiles and he lives in us in spite of our imperfections and our sin and our shortcoming. Uh, and his message to you exactly as you are, your beliefs exactly as you are, your, uh, your life exactly as, I mean, we all, we all have struggles, we all have challenges. Whatever it is tonight, that is you and that is your story. Um, I want you to know that God's message or Jesus' message to you tonight is this, eat and drink with me. That's his message, eat and drink with me. He says, this is his body that's broken for you. And this is his blood that's poured out for you. Here's the invitation. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. So come to the table. So the way that we do it, we're just going to have you take communion on your own time. Spend a minute. I'm just going to give you about one minute. But spend a minute with him. Take communion on your own time. And then I'll close us out in prayer. So God, tonight, we're seekers and we want to find you. We want to find you outside of religious categories. I guess the, the prayer is simple. Just Jesus, help us to be with you at the wedding, celebrating the good in humanity. And forgive us for all the times that we've been pinched-faced world deniers 
missing the party. Help us to not be those people. Help us to learn the beautiful dance. How to live in a world that is hard and bad and can be corrupt, but it's also good and beautiful and sacred and so loved by you. Help us to dance. Amen. So we say thank you, Lord. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Everybody said, amen. amen.